This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 5th of November 2021. Remember, remember. The The 5th 5th of of November. November. (laughs) So Norman, a bit of a sober topic for us today. Every death from COVID is terrible. And it's, I don't think we, I think we can't forget that behind every statistic that we hear is a real person who's lost their lives. But we have been pretty protected in Australia in terms of COVID deaths. And then when we we pan out and look at the whole world, we passed a pretty grim milestone the other day. We we recorded 5 million COVID-19 deaths. But the truth is, that's probably not even close to the actual number of people who've died from this new disease. No, that's right. WHO says maybe two or three times underestimate. It's probably more like five or seven times if the US underestimates plan out globally, and it's probably more like that. I mean, sadly, it's probably 20 or 25 million deaths. It's it's an extraordinary figure. And then you could say that it's well over a billion people who've been infected because the number of cases have almost certainly been underestimated by the same sort of factor. Why are there such gross underestimates then? Testing. Um, there aren't many countries in the world that are doing comprehensive testing. So a lot of people who are getting this, member, a lot of people get it asymptomatically. They don't know they've got it. So in some parts of the world, there's not much test, trace, isolate and quarantine. And simply they go as the flu or not noticed at all. Why is it important for us to actually know? It's important to know the dimensions of the problem because we have to control it. People are dying and it's preventable that they're dying and we need to know where it's happening and public health measures that need to take place. And if you don't know where it is, you can't take the measures that are going to save people's lives. So can we put it into perspective with other pandemics? I thought that maybe we would have surpassed the the 1918 flu pandemic and I'm really relieved to have been wrong. I just looked it up. 500 million people or one third of the world's population but was infected with that particular virus and it didn't kill all of them but it certainly took a huge toll. Um, but how does it compare to something like AIDS? AIDS is about 33 million cases so far in the world, and um, and I can't remember the number of deaths. I just don't have that right in front of me. But you, HIV is substantial and ongoing, although uh, modern treatment does reduce the mortality rate dramatically if countries can access that treatment. But another metric that's important that the financial Times has actually been covering recently is the excess mortality. So what is the number of excess deaths? And that's perhaps a more accurate figure. So rather than saying, well, how many COVID cases you've got, because that depends on testing, a lot of countries are much more accurate about measuring deaths. So they're not as accurate as you think. And when you go through that, the United States, uh, compared to pre-COVID mortality numbers, 20% up. The UK, 13% up. Peru doubled. Brazil, 40%. And if you look at the numbers of people dying, I mean, it's just tragic. So the excess mortality in the United States, 850,000 people died uh, over and above pre-COVID rates. So you'd have to assume that's related to COVID. 124,000 people in the United Kingdom, 700,000 odd in Russia. I mean, extraordinary numbers. And you can see from those numbers, you're going to get up to several million very quickly. It just shows you um, how inaccurate the five million number is. 
So then if vaccination is not the only way out, but it's one of our big protectors, when we look globally at vaccination rates, what are we seeing? Because Australia is on track to probably pass the 80% double dose 16 plus mark over this weekend. So if you look at the OECD, Australia and New Zealand are tracking pretty closely together and we're in the middle of the pack in terms of the OECD, but we're on a trajectory that keeps on going upwards. Remember, the UK has stalled at about 65% or so of the population, total population immunised, and the United States has stalled at 56%. They are flatlined. And even booster shots in the United States is not making a huge difference. At the top of the tree is Portugal and Iceland at 80% of the total population. So we will almost certainly get there in the end. It looks you know, very likely. New South Wales is going to get there in the next two or three days. Victoria not far behind, Tasmania not far behind that. The ACT is already there, but we are in the middle of the pack at, at the moment. Yeah, when you look at first doses, which is probably the best indicator of someone's intention to get a second dose, we're only six days away from 90% of all of Australia's population aged over the age of 16. So that's a good sign, but it's not, as we said before, it's not evenly spread throughout the population. No, that's right. So the national figure is dominated by New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria, but particularly the big states, the big population states, and it hides the low, relatively low immunisation rates, in, particularly in Queensland and WA, which are really lagging behind, not for want of the governments trying to egg them on. And then when you look at vulnerable populations, particularly the Aboriginal population in terms of the gap there, that gap is actually widening in terms of the deficiency in Aboriginal communities. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, WA was about 30% below the national average. It's now 35%. South Australia, I think a couple of weeks ago, was about 22%, now 26% under the average. Queensland, again, ran low 20s a couple of weeks ago, now 25%. ACT, New South Wales and Victoria. New South Wales has narrowed the gap a little bit but they're still somewhere between 11 and 15% under the average. So we're really not doing well in Aboriginal communities. It's really, really important that we correct this gap. And we're actually going to try to get someone on next week to talk about some of the complexities that are driving that, that gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous vaccination. The other thing to note is that vaccination rates are slowing down in, uh, in Australia. We probably peaked at 250,000 doses a day. It's now less than 100. I think it's now getting to about 150,000 a day. Now, you'd expect that, particularly, again, those numbers are dominated by New South Wales and Victoria, with a little bit there with ACT, but it doesn't affect the numbers that much because it's a small population. So you would expect that as they get towards 90%, and it's now the second second doses dominate in, in the daily dose rate, and we'll get boosters kicking in, and hopefully children towards the end of the year, in Queensland and Western Australia, it's flatlined. So it's, luckily, it's not going down in those cases, the rate of immunisation, but it's not going up either. But at least they're holding at their daily immunisation rate. Yeah, we really don't want that that curve, that particular vaccination curve, to, to drop down until we've really got those super high vaccination rates. Yep. We often hear that regional vaccination rates maybe aren't as high as they are in the cities, but I was really interested, maybe it's just because I'm a Queenslander, Norman, and I'm looking at this virus looking like it's going to cross the border, but Gundawindi, which is on the, the border between 
Queensland and New South Wales, has had a couple of cases coming through. Their vaccination rate, the reason basically that we're not going into a lockdown situation is because their vaccination rate is so high. They've got 93.1% first doses, what they did yesterday at least, and their second dose rate is up at 83.5, which is pretty impressive considering that the state's overall vaccination rate for second doses is only 65.3. And uh, the people who tested positive yesterday, I think one was unvaccinated and one had only had one dose. So that's a pretty small case study, but it, it feels illustrative. You've got a bit of security around when you've got that degree of immunisation. And Norman, you have heaps of famous friends. Every now and again, you drop names into conversations and I honestly do a double take. I have zero famous friends except for Professor Eddie Holmes, who we've had on this show more than one time. And he won the Prime Minister's Science Prize this week. He did. It's fantastic news um, for his work um, on the genomics and the evolution of the coronavirus and his ongoing work in that area. It's been amazing. He, you, you, would, you could argue that he was the person globally who made a huge difference. So you had the Chinese scientists who did the genomic analysis, but one of them, a brave person, passed it on to Eddie and Eddie passed it on to the world, which allowed vaccine, the vaccine technologists to get on and match their vaccine to the uh, coronavirus. And, uh, and the rest is history, so they say. And if you want to hear Eddie, um, I think it was three Fridays ago, he was on Coronacast. That is all we've got time for on this episode of Coronacast. And while you are waiting for our next episode on the other side of the weekend, you might like to check out a different podcast. Check out Days Like These. It's the best story you'll hear all week. They're real stories about the biggest day in someone's life. Yeah. In this series, there's a Tasmanian love story, how Radio Australia inspired a Chinese soldier to come here. And what a crack in someone's reality feels like, along with a bunch of other inspiring, heartbreaking and true stories. So find days like these on the ABC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts like Coronacast. And we'll see you on Monday. See you then.